All right, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to continue on our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, you know, we've been preaching on this now for a couple months uh, on Sundays, just working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And I just want to make this point, you know, you might wonder, gosh, you're kind of really laboring over this. You're taking your time. And yeah, I am. And the reason why is, this is a critical, foundational sermon to Christianity. This sermon that Jesus lays out gives us the expected value system and culture of the kingdom of God. And those that are uh, subjects of the kingdom are to be... um, well, not just educated or instructed by it, but are be to, are to be called into living it. And so uh, we can't um, just brush through this and act like it's, you know, just a, another little teaching or just read over it and, um, and not pay attention to it. We really must lock into the values of the Sermon on the Mount and, and allow them to become our values. That's really the point of this. This is truly the... Uh, the key statement of what kingdom life is to, is to be, and so therefore we've got to employ our hearts in it and, and, and connect to it, not just from an understanding standpoint, but actually from a, a life standpoint. And so that's why I'm taking the time on it. I might take another eight weeks. I probably will. It'll probably take me that much longer to get through the rest of it. Uh, you know, let's just lock our hearts in. Let's just engage with it. I know you have been. But I, you know, I'm probably at the halfway point right now. And, and so I want to encourage you really to lock in and, and, uh, and ask the Holy Spirit to continue to, to you know, open your heart to truths that are here and, and, and encourage you to, to draw you into living these, these uh, truths. So uh, just again, if you're, if you're taking notes, I want to give you the, um, the six sections that are laid out in Matthew 5. What Jesus is doing here in Matthew 5 is he's, he's giving us teachings that the Pharisees taught, and, and what he's saying is they have taught these things improperly, they've taken the law, and they've twisted the law through their teachings, and so I am, Jesus, he says, I am coming now, and I'm undoing the knots that they've tied, and I'm giving you these truths with Holy Spirit revelation. And so there's, there's six different areas where he gives us um, a, a, a something that they've heard, and he says, but I say unto you. He goes, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And it's a, it's a, a literary form that's called a thesis and antithesis. So he gives the, the thought that they've understood, and then the opposite is what he says is actually truth. And so those six sections are key sections. There's key issues that he touches. I'm going to lay them out for you real fast, and then we'll get into... Um, the last three sections. What he does is from verse 21 through 48, he gives us five key areas and then the answer or the antidote. Five key areas that cause people to stumble and then the antidote. And so verse 21 through 26, he deals with the issue of anger. Verse 27 through 30, he deals with the issue of lust. Verse 31 through 32, covenant breaking, particularly the issue of marriage and divorce. And that's what we looked at uh, the entire time last week. And then tonight we'll pick up at 33, which 33 through 37, he deals with this issue of swearing falsely. 
38 through 42, we'll touch that tonight. Also, that's retaliation. He deals with the issue of retaliation. And then 43 through 48, all are answered by love. The issue of love answers them all and compels the heart to live the value system of the kingdom. Now, I will tell you this, because I preached this this morning. Uh, it's, it's, this is a broccoli tray. This is a vegetarian delight tonight. There's not, we don't, we have almost no whipped cream. There's not even really any dip on the tray. It's just raw broccoli and cauliflower. And that's what we're doing. All right. We can do dessert some other time. It's not tonight. Tonight is Brussels sprout night. Which is good. Because you'll be surprised how vitamin deficient we may be when, uh, when we actually look at these things and what this, what this instructs us. So, we're going broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts. Now, let's look then at verse 33 and begin to work through this first... This first uh, it's, a, it's actually the fourth section that I'm, in terms of the, the six, but it's our first for tonight, this issue of swearing falsely. Okay, verse 33. I'm going to actually read from the, the New King James. I just like how it says it a little better. I think you've got the NIV on the screen, but here we go. Again, you have heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by the earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Verse 37 now, this is the operative thing. He says, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. And look at this. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Wow, that's a strong last sentence on what we may consider to be a very simple, you know, topic. Simply giving your word. Really, that's what he's dealing with. Giving your word. And actually saying yes and meaning it and keeping your word and saying no when you mean it and keeping your word that way. Now he says this, he goes, you've heard it said, do not swear falsely but perform your oaths to the Lord. That's not even in the Old Testament. That's just a a rabbinical teaching that the Pharisees picked up. And here's the way it worked. At the time, people would swear by certain things to, to try to offer a guarantee that their word was true. We do the same thing in our day. But they would swear by um, different things, and depending on what they swore by, it was sort of uh, the scale of whether or not what they were saying was true. And so they might swear by the temple... And that may or may not be true. But if they swore by the offering or the gold in the temple, because that supposedly belonged to God, then for sure it was a binding oath. And so that's why he goes through this little conversation. He goes, don't swear by heaven or by earth or or by the holy city. He goes, you don't have the authority to change even your hair color. 
You can't make your hair white or black. He goes, so don't swear and invoke heaven or God. Uh, you know, he goes, what you've got to be is just a person who says what they mean and means what they say. Just give your word and mean it. Now that might seem so, so simple to us, but the implication on this verse is so much broader than simply saying yes when you mean yes and no when you mean no. Firstly, how often do we have to, and, and you see it in young people all the time, but even, even adults will do it. They'll, they'll give a word and they'll say, I swear. And somebody will go, you swear to God? And they go, I swear to God. This is, ex- I mean, literally, that practice, it's, it's Americana, but that practice is exactly what Jesus is nailing here. The point is, the reason why people have to do that is because we aren't credible and we lack integrity. And even in a court of law, we have to make an oath on the Bible because people lie all the time. And so Jesus is saying the standard for uh, believers, for the followers of the kingdom, the standard for kingdom people is just say yes and mean it and leave it at that. Just say no and mean it and leave it at that. And don't invoke all these oaths and swear and I promise and, and have to do all these things to sort of build your word up to actually prove that your word is good. Just let your word be good and let it be known that your word is good. And, and since your word is good, people will know when you give your word, it's a good word. Now, that might seem so elementary, but it is such a problem. It is such a problem. From things as little as, you know, being on time. Now, I'm not talking about if somebody is, you know, one minute late, one time. But there's all sorts of times where you know a certain person may tell you, I'm going to be there at 12 o'clock, and you just go, I know not to even show up till 1230 because they're not going to be there on time. If you're the person that always shows up at 1230 when you say 12 o'clock, you need to change that. Just change that. Say 12 o'clock and mean it. Let your yes be yes. That's a, it's a character and an integrity issue that it seems so simple just being on time, but that will transcend into all the other areas of your life. If an, a person can't trust you in your word in one area, they can't trust you in your word in other areas as well. Now, one of the things that I've gotten to study over a long period of time because of my history as being a youth pastor is what causes children in a home to rebel. And oftentimes as a youth pastor, the, the kids that were in the youth group that were the most on fire for Jesus kids, oftentimes those kids weren't kids that were raised in the church. Oftentimes those were kids that had just gotten saved. Maybe they came from a, a rough background. They get saved and they get so on fire for God. And for years I would scratch my head and I'd go, how come the church kids aren't on fire for the Lord like these kids that were raised outside the church? If they're raised in the church, they should be even that much more. And as I begin to, to look into this and study this, one of the key reasons, not the only reason, but one of the key reasons I found why church kids 
wouldn't be on fire for the Lord is because in the home, what was being practiced was different than what the parents said they were about. What I mean is, the parents would declare and act in public like they were these, you know, on-fire Christians, but in the house, it was a completely different deal. And so the kids aren't stupid. And by the time they're 13, 14, they're looking at this thing going, you know, mom and dad, they're saying that, but they're living this. And that, beloved, that disparity, that hypocrisy was weighs on the heart of those young people and the fact that the parents yes is not yes it speaks to them that their own yes doesn't have to be all this fake and fluffy yes they just give a a yes at the level that their family really is going to live it anyway and so the kids would be they would be the picture uh, their spirituality would be the real picture of what was happening in the home And and the breakdown was because the parents yes wasn't yes Their yes seemed to be this big yes, but it was a much lesser yes. And so the kids would, they would bend down to this lower yes. And so here's my thing. I look at this issue and I think, you know, there are a variety of places. I mean, all day long throughout our life, we have the opportunity to give our word. There's a variety of times we have the opportunity to to say yes or no to all sorts of different things. And there are people that I come in contact with, and I think, if that guy said it, he means it, and that's reality. And then there's people, and you know, you come in contact with them, and they might say yes, but you don't know what it really means. Because their word is no good. You know, your word is your name. It's your honor. How you give your word has so much to do with how you are perceived, the honor that you carry among people. And so I would encourage you, and Jesus makes it really strong, and I'm going to show you why in just a minute. But I would encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to deal with you over this issue of giving your word and keeping your word. And are you a person that does that? Now here's, Jesus ultimately is going after the spirit of falsehood. He's he's actually going after, you know, the, the core of lying. And so exaggeration, embellishing, you know, all these different little forms, little white lies, all these different forms of falsehood, he's actually nailing all of them. And, and I, you know, I, I really want to challenge all of us to consider the words we speak and, and, and ask us to really, before the Lord, uh, ask the Lord to, to examine our words. Do we love the spirit of truth? Do we love to speak truth at all costs? Or do we love embellishing and exaggerating, adding a little sauce to the story, because it sounds better? The sauce is not of God. That's what Jesus said. He goes, anything more is from the devil. And I, I, you know, some people, they're never prone to exaggerate. Some people are a little bit more evangelistic. And they love to stretch the truth. And you know what, you know what happens? People will be telling a story and, and what's at stake is their own image. And so they're telling a story and they'll make the story sound a little better 
Because they think it will improve the other person's perception of them for some reason. And really, the other person doesn't care. They don't care if you made $500 or $550. It doesn't matter. But what we'll do is we'll stretch it. We'll say, yeah, you know, maybe it's a business deal. Oh, man, I sold eight of them. And it was six. Eight sounds good to us. The hearer doesn't care whether it's six, two, 27, or eight. But what we do is we stretch it because in our mind, if we say a little bit more, we make ourselves look better. That's a spirit of falsehood. That's not being credible in your word. It's not having your yes, yes. And uh, I tell you what, I'm a person that's more prone to exaggeration. And, and as I was growing up in, 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 in my Christian walk, I realized, you know, I, I won't just, you know, I, I won't just premeditate lies. You know, I won't just go, I'm going to just, just lie to people. I, I mean, I just wouldn't do that. But I would find myself in stories, and I'd be telling the story, and then all of a sudden, you know, preachers love to do this. It, it, it was 100 people, but it turned into 125 somehow. Those 25 were there in spirit, but you just counted them. And I would find myself stretching the truth. And I, and I, you know, I remember the Lord just dealing with me about this, just saying, son, that's just like premeditating lies. Because you let your hearer walk away believing something that's false. That's not godly. And, and so here's what I had to do. I had to make it a practice that if I, some, and see, sometimes with me, what would happen is I would hear the exaggeration come out of my mouth before I even thought that I was going to exaggerate. I'm just telling the story and it's getting bigger and now there's a thousand people and by the end of this, 1,200 people were there and God was multiplying people. <clears throat> and, and, and the Lord sort of dealing. And so what I had to do was, and, and I do this still to this day because it happens to me still. But I'll, if I find myself in the middle of explaining something and I give an exaggerated figure, I'll actually give the thing and then my ne- I'll get con- it's, here's how it works with me. I give the, the lie, and I, and I feel the urn of the Holy Spirit, and then my next statement fixes it. So I go, there was like a thousand, I mean about the 800, 723 people there. And <clears throat> so 723 people, and da 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 And it's awkward, and it's ugly, and it's humiliating, but it's true. It's true, which is Way better than it being false, because false is of the evil one. And what we got to do is decide that in the kingdom, we're going to speak truth at all costs. Truth at all costs. See, we love humility, but we don't love humiliation. And a lot of times, humiliation is the pathway to humility. And so... Whatever it takes, you don't want to be this person that swears falsely all the time, that's always exaggerating or that gives your word and it's not true. Little white lies. See, we've come to believe that you tell the lie to protect the person's heart. No, the truth is better than the lie that protects the person's heart because that lie doesn't protect their heart. That lie lets them believe that Something other than reality is true. 
And they need to be connected to reality. And, uh, and I mean, it's at times hard to be the bearer of truth. But that's why we're supposed to speak the truth in love. And so we, you know, we think, you know, the person comes up and says, Hey, uh, do you like my new shirt? And we think if it's ugly, we're supposed to go, Oh, yeah. And I'm not saying you should go, no, that's the ugliest shirt I've ever seen. Don't ever wear that again. That's ugly. If you look up ugly in the dictionary, your shirt will be in there. Don't, look, don't wear that. I'm not saying you should be insulting. But, I, you know, I'm saying that you could be a person that is a truth speaker. And you go, you know, I think you got some others that I probably like better. Praise God. Well, you know what it is? You'll set a standard, and people, when they want to hear the truth, they'll talk to you. They'll, tell, they'll ask you, because you're, you're one that speaks truth, regardless of... See, we don't really like truth. Truth's uncomfortable. It's painful. A lot of us would rather hear a lie. You know? Truth, though, man, it, drums, it drops the plumb line. It settles the issue. My children, I just, I just made it a point that I wouldn't be a liar to my kids. I just, I, I wanted my children to know that if dad said it, it was real. We didn't ever do any Easter bunny. There was never, we never, you know, never did Santa Claus, never left the, you know, the, the, the cookies out. And then I ate them and said, see, look, there's crumbs. We never did any of that foolishness because my kids know you never told me there was an Easter bunny. You never told me there was a Santa Claus and you never lied to me. And, and so there'll be times, and I pull their leg at times, and I'm joking around with them. And so there'll be times when my kids will say, so uh, they'll go, oh, come on, that's not true, that's not true. Now all I have to do to settle it is, do I, all I have to do to settle any, any dispute on whether something I'm saying is true, all I have to do is say, do I ever lie to you? And when they say that, they instantly go, no, you never lie. I go, it's true. It's that simple. You can be that. It's not hard. It's, it's like not that hard. It's a simple idea that gains incredible equity in your family, with your spouse, with your kids, in your job, in your life. Yes, let your yes be yes. When you say yes, mean it. Even, even Psalm 15, it says, even swear to your own hurt. And I love this story this preacher tells about how uh, he's on his way home with, uh, with his children from this meeting, and the meeting had gone really late. It was a church meeting. Went to like 11, 11.30, and <clears throat> the kids were asleep in the back of the car, and as he's driving home, he, he, had, he remembered he had promised the children that on the way home, um, they would get some ice cream. And he's thinking, you know, the kids are asleep, we're not going to get the ice cream, and whatever. So he's on his way home, and, and his, in his, in his uh, I guess it's his son, sticks his head up and goes, and just, he's dead asleep one minute, and he just goes, hey dad, what about the ice cream? And, and I'm not advising you to feed your child ice cream at 11.30 at night. I don't necessarily think that's the best idea. But the dad, he, he, he instantly remembered. He goes, you know, I gave him my word that we would get ice cream on the way home. And he, though he's dead asleep and now dreaming, he probably doesn't even know he's awake asking me for ice cream. I'm going to keep my word, even if it's swearing to my own heart, I'm going to keep my word so my, so my son knows that when I speak, my yes is yes and my, and my no is no. And beloved, that's just, that is just something that we have got to sharpen up. When we make a commitment, keep our commitment. Even if it hurts sometimes. Even if it hurts sometimes. And so Jesus says this. He goes, it's, uh, anything more is of the evil one. 
Well, why does he say that? Because of John 8. He gives us much more detail in John 8 of what he meant by that. Now look at John 8, verse 44. It'll be on your screens. Speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, Jesus doesn't have a man-pleasing bone in his body. I mean, he's not political, not one inch political. I love this. Speaking to the main religious leaders, here we go, John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. He's saying, this is why you want to kill me. Because the devil's a murderer. And you want to do what your father wants to do. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So why does Jesus say anything more is from the evil one? Because that influence that calls us to even do the exaggeration, to even do the little white lie, to break our commitment, that influence is the influence of the enemy because he is a liar even down to his very nature. And beloved, we are filled with the Holy Spirit who is the spirit of truth. From our mouth should come truth and we should not allow lies. Not in any form. Even if it hurts to tell the truth. Now, the stakes are even higher. I mean, if that's not compelling enough, and it is, because nobody wants to speak from the, 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 you know, the foundational character of the devil. But if that's not compelling enough, Psalm 24 is. It's not going to be on your screen because I just didn't give it to him. So, but flip over there. I want you to see this. It's compelling enough that Jesus said it. He gives us good reason because when people speak lies, they speak from the core heart of the enemy. But look what Psalm 24 says. I love this. Who may ascend, verse 3, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He's going, who has access to the presence of God? Who can stand in the hill? And who can stand in his holy place? Who can stand before the Lord? He who has clean hands, a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, swearing falsely. Beloved, this thing about the spirit of truth and speaking truth and swearing falsely, if, if we um, allow swearing falsely to be a part of our life, it will inhibit us from being able to encounter the presence of the Lord. And I think so often there's believers that are dull when it comes to the presence of the Lord. It's because they have this issue of exaggeration and falsehood that they continue to practice and they have no idea of it. There are people who have been raised in homes where white lies and exaggeration and, and falsehood just the norm. And so growing up, they didn't realize that, hey, no, there's actually a standard for speaking truth. There's a there's a good thing where you speak the truth and you don't speak lies. And, and, and if that's been your reality, you've got to ask the Lord for grace, conviction of the Holy Spirit, and then empowerment to overcome that, to redirect the way you speak. And I've, I've met adults, rich and poor, and it's, it's wild to me, but they are so accustomed to speaking falsehood, they believe falsehood, 
They speak falsehood and they just live their life in a fantasy world according to their own truth that's not connected to reality. Anybody ever? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to be the person next to you. But you know what I'm saying. And there are all sorts of people who've created their own reality by the spirit of falsehood. The enemy feeds it to them. They believe lies. They speak lies. And, and half the time, they know it's not true. You ever been in an argument with somebody and at the end of the argument, they go, yeah, I knew you were right all along. Man, you were arguing fervently for what you knew was false. Yeah, I knew. Why? That influences the enemy. And beloved, we've got to deal ruthlessly with this. It will inhibit our encounter and our sensitivity to the presence of the Lord. It will disable us from being able to stand in the presence of the Lord. That's a big, big deal. Amen. All right. Let's move to the next one. Retaliation. We're just going to move right from broccoli to Brussels sprouts now. <clears throat> Verse 38. Back in Matthew 5. You heard it, that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. All right, here Jesus is dealing with principally the issue of retaliation, but in a very broad way, he's dealing with the issue of having your own rights, sticking up for your rights. And he deals with different issues to illustrate this truth that in Christ, we are not our own and we don't have any rights. And he goes through it thing after thing after thing. Now, he's using examples that are specific to the time. And so we can read through that. And, and nobody here goes eye for an eye. Nobody thinks that. We don't have that law in America. We don't think eye for an eye. We understand that's a historical idea. So it doesn't impact us. But when we understand what these things are actually about, the, the, the truths that he's speaking are powerful. So let's just work through each one of them. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You've heard it was said, eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now, this issue of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it shows up in the law. It shows up in Exodus 21, verse 24, and it shows up in Leviticus 24, verse 20. And the issue at hand that Jesus is dealing with the people about is this. That law was put in place by Moses... To, show, uh, to set a standard for the extent of retaliation that was allowable if somebody uh, created a major offense against you. And so what the law was, was a concession. It was addressed to the courts that uh, an, a person who'd suffered a major injury at the hands of another, the courts had a limit to what would be recompensed to that person. So, 
If somebody injured another person and, um, you know, not, you know uh, knocked out their eye, let's say, the court would say the, the most they have to pay back is their own eye. That's the most. You can't say uh, a life for an eye. So this was, this law was about a limit that was set in place so that people wouldn't take the issues of wrong, when they've been done wrong into their own hands and start, you know, basically it was to stop uh, family units from feuding with one another and escalating the issue. Do you know what I'm saying? So one person loses their hand, well now they're going to take the other guy's leg and now we're going to fight and now it's just a, a rumble. No, what it was, it was handled uh, judicially and it was handled and, uh, by these standards said, okay, you can't take any more than this for this style of an offense. That was the point of it. Well, what the Pharisees did was this. They said, if somebody, you know, um, has a major issue that some, somehow they cause you suffering, say they, they take your foot, the Pharisees came in and said, you have to take the other person's foot. If they take your hand, you have to take the other person's hand. And instead of it being a limit to retaliation, they made it a standard for retaliation. And Jesus' point is, that's not it at all. The point isn't that you get to retaliate all the way up to how you've been wronged. He goes, no, I'm telling you, don't resist the evil person. He goes, and let me show you all the different ways that this can play out. First, he says, if somebody strikes you on your cheek, turn the other. Allow them to hit you on the other cheek. Now, Jesus is not uh, putting in place a, uh, an opportunity for someone to continually be abused by another. That's not what he's doing. If you take, you know, some people think it's, you know, you, they hit you here, you turn, hit me again, keep turning, and you're supposed to just keep getting hit over and over and over because Jesus said, turn the other cheek. That's not what he's doing at all. How many has ever heard, uh, man, that's a slap in the face? What does that mean? It's an insult. That was degrading. That was an insult. Well, the slap on the right cheek in that culture, it was an insult. That idea, a slap in the face, is something that transcends time and culture, even back to New Testament times. The worst way you could insult somebody was to slap them in the face. Jesus' point is this. When somebody insults you personally, don't retaliate. Let them do it again and again, and again. This thing is not about uh, uh, being physically beaten. It's about how you handle when somebody speaks in a degrading way about you. Now think about that for a minute. Because a lot of times, when they're saying the nasty thing about you, that's a lot worse than just momentarily getting hit. And I want you to think about how believers are supposed to act if we're not supposed to retaliate and, you know, um, assail the person back, then that puts us in a, a place of really needing grace. I mean, I don't know how you respond when somebody says something negative to you about you or your family or your wife. 
I'm one of those people that I feel the, the red on the thermometer rising instantaneously in my body. I'm like, ooh, I don't want to start feeling this. Ooh, I really don't want, I don't want to feel this. <sighs> I don't want to be feeling like this. <laughs> I mean, it's the, you don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. I mean, I, fe- I feel the thing rising in me. And a lot of times that's because we want our rights We don't want to be treated this way. We say things like, I don't deserve this. Jesus goes, here's what I'm saying. If they say degrading things about you, if they they dishonor you, if they slap you in the face, he goes, don't retaliate. Don't say a word back about it. In fact, let them do it again and again. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is being called Beelzebub. He's being mocked and assailed at the cross. And and, and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, he speaks not a word. God is the vindicator of those who are defrauded. And I promise you, he is your vindicator. You don't have to get into some war of the words and, you know, this back and forth. Oh, yeah, well, you know, you said that about me. Well, you too, you're a da-da-da-da-da. Well, you too. I mean, that is so unseemly and ungodly. Jesus wants us to trust him, allow him to be our vindication, and not fire back. Man, that's intense. Because it's challenging. It's not easy, and it hurts, and we don't like being wronged, and Jesus said, give them your other cheek. What is this issue about? It's ultimately about your reputation. See, the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth, he's saying, you don't have the rights that you think you've got, and the first area you don't have any rights in is your reputation, don't defend your reputation. Don't try to stick up for yourself. Don't try, you know, don't try to get in this war of the words. You don't have the rights in the kingdom to you know, hold up your own reputation. How can I say that? Because Jesus Christ made himself of no reputation, humbling himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and be, he became even obedient to death. If God takes himself and says, I've got no reputation, his followers are supposed to do the same. Turn the other cheek. Well, what's this issue about uh, the the tunic and, and the cloak? Well, let me just ask you, how many of you have a tunic? No tunic wearers? Now, we might have a, a couple closet cloak wears. Anybody got a few cloaks? Cloak here, there? Nobody wants to admit it? Okay, no cloak wearers, just for the record. So then probably you've brushed over this and gone, I don't have any tunics or cloaks. I don't have to worry about this. Praise God. That thing about getting hit in the face twice, that was hard enough. So here's the deal. The tunic was the inner garment. The cloak was the outer garment back in the day. And the cloak doubled for, as a person's bedding. It was basically their blanket that they would sleep with. And so it's interesting, but you can actually look it up. Exodus 22, verse 26 and 27, talks about this, how you're not supposed to take a person's cloak because 
It was like seen as a basic human necessity, a basic human right, that you don't take somebody's cloak away from them because they've got to sleep with it. Well, Jesus says this, if the guy is trying to get your tunic, give him your cloak too. And we, we go, wait a minute. Give him, give him my, my bedspread? <laughs> do you th- hey, do you think it's about a jacket or a bedspread? It's about your property. It's not yours, it's his. He goes, just like you don't have rights to your reputation. He goes, I'm telling you, be open-handed with everything you own. He goes, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Everything you got, you got for me anyway. Somebody's trying to take your tunic, give them your cloak too. I've got you. And this issue hits our property. The first one hits our reputation. The second one hits what we own, our property. What's this one about go one mile or, or go two? What's that mean? Anybody ever said to you, hey, hey, come on, you have to walk with me a mile. That didn't make any sense to us. What, what is that about? What it was about was this. The Roman soldiers in any of the provinces that Rome ruled they could compel any of the citizens to carry their, their backpack, whatever it was, their burden, their, their personal items, to carry them for them. So oftentimes the soldiers would grab somebody and say, hey, you have to carry my stuff. Well, what, what the, what the uh, Rome government, what they put in place was, so as not to uh, too deeply offend the provinces that they, that they were ruling, they said you can only compel the people to go a mile. And we see this happen when Simon Cyrene is compelled by a Roman soldier to carry Jesus' cross. But this was the norm of the day. If soldiers were moving from one place to another, they would oftentimes grab citizens of those provinces and say, you have to carry my stuff. Well, Rome puts in place and says, you only have to go, they can only go a mile. You can only compel an individual to go a mile. Anything more is too much. Make it only a mile. And so Jesus goes, You know when they're trying to make you go a mile? He goes, at the mile mark. Turn around and look at him and go, hey, I'm doing good. I'm going to go another mile with you if that's okay. You and I go, what? You know, if I, think about it, put yourself in in the shoes of the time. If uh, the, you know, the soldier makes you go the mile, you're like, man, I'm glad that's done. Jesus says, no, no, offer the second mile. What's he dealing with? Your time. Your reputation, your property, and your time. He goes, it's not yours, it's mine. Offer it freely. I just wonder how many Christians of that day, when they got told to, that the, they had to carry the stuff for the Roman soldier, I just wonder how many of them actually did. I mean, I, you got to think that probably happened on multiple occasions. They probably t- turned to the Roman soldier at the mile mark and said, hey, I'm going to go another mile. And this Roman soldier guy went, what? Oh, yeah. My leader told me I should go another mile with you. Well, why would you do such a thing? Well, love. You love me? Yeah. You love me. Yes, I'd be happy to carry your stuff another mile. And let me tell you about my leader. I've got to think there were some cool conversations that happened after that. Reputation, property, time, and then the last one. Give to him who asks. 
from him who wants to borrow, don't turn away. Now, this thing is not about, this is not a teaching on the wisdom of giving to everybody in every circumstance. I don't know if you've ever done any homeless ministry before, but um, I, I have. And it's amazing to me how uh, a lot of the guys that have been uh, on the street for a while, they actually know Matthew 5.42. And they'll walk right up to you and go, hey, hey, brother, can, can, I, have a, can I have five bucks? And I go, what are you going to do with it? Well, it doesn't matter what I'm going to do with it. The Bible says you've got to give to him who asks. I've actually had that happen to me. You're not a Christian. And I, I mean, I remember being a young man and having that happen to me and going, yeah, I don't know what that verse means, but I know it doesn't mean I'm supposed to give it to you right now so you can go smoke crack. I know for sure it doesn't mean that. I don't know what it means, but it doesn't mean that. Jesus isn't trying to give us a teaching on the wisdom of, and stewardship of giving. What he's trying to do with, trying to deal with, is the way we think about our stuff in this last area, our money. It's our reputation, our property, our time, and our finances. He goes, here's the mind you're supposed to have. Always think to give. Always think to lend. Always think to offer. Always be generous. That's the mentality that the subjects of the kingdom are to have. Ones who are continuously giving and with a generous heart, not holding back, not a stingy attitude. He goes, give when you have the opportunity. And he goes, if somebody needs to borrow from you, don't turn your back on them. Consider it every time. Think about how you can be a blessing in giving away what God's given you. That's what he's trying to get us to become, is a people that are generous, that don't try to, try to have our own rights, that are, don't look at all of our own stuff as, as all, you know, it's mine, mine, mine. You know, it's interesting, in the book of Acts, when the church was birthed, it actually says that nobody thought of the things that they owned as their own. Where do you think they got that idea? Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' core teaching on how the culture of the kingdom is supposed to be lived out. Now be careful here because Jesus isn't giving us, you know, five new commandments. Sometimes what we see is we, we look at the, 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 the directives of the New Testament and we think, well, th those are commandments that I have to do. I have to do them just one, two, three, four, five. And so, so I have to, you know, live by this standard. And we imagine he's giving us these set in stone like another set of commandments. But what did Jesus explain in John? He says, he goes, I'm not giving you a, a, a new commandment. He goes, but then again, it is a new commandment. And what is it? Love. And beloved, this thing is not about a list of do's and don'ts. This is about the, the heart and the, the life that's compelled by love that overcomes things that, that spoil and, and toxins that, 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 you know, destroy your life. And so then that's what he gives us in verse 43. Let's look at it. It's the last one. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That again was another of the Pharisees twisting 
the, the Old Testament. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Not, are not even the tax collectors doing that? The tax collectors were the worst guys in the society. And the reason why was they had sold out Israel and began to work for Rome. And they would beat their brethren to get the monies that Rome was you know, you know, extracting from them. They were, and they were, just, they were just horrible. They were taking an override on everything and, and getting rich on their own countrymen. He goes, don't even the tax collectors love those who, who love them? Look at verse 47. He goes, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, this last area, it is the one that enables us to live the values that he's laid out in the five other areas. Love is what will compel you to lay down your rights. Love is what will compel you to keep your word. Love is what will compel you to not retaliate, to overcome lust, to keep your covenants. Love answers all these things. Love is what will, will cause your heart to reject anger and contempt of others. The issue is love. And Jesus gives us love of another order. He goes, don't just love your neighbor. Love your enemy. Beloved, this is, this is so critical. This is the crux of Christianity. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. Romans 5, while we were yet enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. Listen, when I hated God, he'd already sent Jesus because of love. God loves the one who hates him. And so when he says, verse 48, it's, it's just read by itself. It's the most disqualifying verse in the whole Bible. Be perfect as your father is perfect. I, mean, I used to read that verse and I would just sort of crumble under it. I'm like, it's over for me. I can't be perfect. <laughs> just give up, you know. The context isn't about perfect in actions. It's about perfect in love. God is calling us to perfection in love, beloved. Love that even loves our enemies. You know what I've realized years ago when I first started looking at this? I'm really good at loving those that love me and really good at ignoring those who hate me. But ignoring those who are your enemies is not loving your enemies. Oh, little side thought. The enemy isn't the person that you've targeted and said, ah, that's an enemy. In Christ, you love everybody. You're not allowed to have enemies in that sense. The enemy is the one that's made you the target. Get it? The enemy is the one that is an enemy toward you. You're to love that one. Not ignore them. Love them. Serve them. 
pray for them and bless them. That's Christianity. That's how Jesus saved the world. And that, beloved, is how a world who hates God and hates his followers is actually going to find the truth of God's love is by us loving them. This one is where the rubber meets the road. Love of this order will enable you to live those other five areas and all sorts of the characteristics and the culture of the kingdom, but ultimately it's the statement of, of Jesus' kingdom values and life come in a broken human being. You know why? Because it is not our nature to love those that hate us. It is not our nature. That is, the sin nature does not compel you to love those who hate you. That's only a work of God. And when, it, when a lost world sees love offered to it, even when, when, when the lost despise the church, I mean, the, the last thing we need to be doing is railing on the world. We've got to figure out how to love those who have made themselves enemies of us, to bless and pray for them. Not with vindictive, retaliatory prayers. God, I just pray you just release fire on those guys, you know. Jesus rebuked his disciples for trying to call down fire. He says, you don't know the spirit you're of. There's a different spirit that we're of. And it compels us to love those that even hate us. I love these quotes. St. Augustine, he said this. Many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but they do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. That's just, that just says it, doesn't it? Sam Storm said this. He said, nothing will more quickly capture the attention of non-Christians than loving your enemies. If only because nothing is more contrary to human nature and more in conformity with the divine nature. End with a story. I, uh, I remember this one time, and this really falls under the area of retaliation and this area of love. But I remember this one time I was in this problem, people were saying negative things about me. And it was just a challenge. You know, you've been in those situations where just you're having interpersonal collisions. And uh, I know it's hard for you to believe that anybody would ever say anything negative about me, but it was happening. And, um, just a joke. And, um, and so I, I, I brought in a, a, a friend who I really respect, godly man, and, and he was going to help sit in this situation and, and just listen to what was going on. And, and, uh, and, we, and we, we did the deal and, and, and had this long conversation, and we left out of there, and and so I was talking to my friend on the way out, and I said, so, so what do you think? They're, they're wrong, aren't they? They're, they're really wrong. And he goes, oh, man, this is good for you. I go, were, I go, were we in the same room? Good for me? He goes, oh, yeah, really good for you. I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you know what you, he goes, you need meekness. He goes, this is so good for you. He goes, let those guys beat the tar out of you. Oh, it's so good for you. All right, bro. And gives me a hug and, and we leave. I, I, I walked out. I thought, that's the worst advice 
anyone has ever given me ever in my life good for me. And the more I prayed about it, and as I complained to the Lord about the horrible advice I'd gotten, the Lord goes, yeah, it is good for you. Because in the kingdom, you don't retaliate. In the kingdom, you don't stand up for your own rights. And in the kingdom, you love those who are even speaking negatively towards you. Beloved, this is who we're called to be. This is the quality of Christianity we are called to live. Beloved, this is what Jesus went to the cross to purchase for us. A perfect love that overlooks the faults of others and loves them through it. A perfect love that resists inner anger and contempt, that pushes off lust on the inside. A perfect love that keeps our covenants. A perfect love that keeps our words. And a perfect love that gives up our rights. That's the key message of those six areas in the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, to love like he loves. Well, you've got to know his love to be able to love like he loves. If you don't know his love for you, you'll never be able to love as you are loved. And that's why spending time meditating in the message of God's love for you is the most powerful thing you can do to compel your heart and enable your heart to live the values of the kingdom of God. Because as you know love, you're able to love, and as you're able to love, you'll live this value system. Amen.